Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Scott Chabina to the show. Scott is the founder of Chabina Energy Partners. Having successfully advised numerous clients across a wide range of complex circumstances, Scott is in a unique position in the renewable fuels and related decarbonization industries. He is fully qualified to partner with a wide range of clients, such as management teams, investors, lenders, and others to provide strategic advisory services well ahead of any immediate transaction or capital markets opportunity. Scott's extensive experience advising different types of capital providers and project participants gives him the ability to understand their respective concerns and build consensus in difficult situations. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Raj. How are you? Thank you uh, for having me, of course. I'm excited to be here. Scott, thank you for joining. Exciting to speak to you. Scott, where are you located? Uh, I am in New York, uh, weathering the COVID storm like many others, uh, but out here on the, the East Coast. How's the weather up there? At the moment, unseasonably warm, uh, which is a, a whole other conversation, but uh, we're, doing, <laughs> we're doing fine. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad to hear it. Scott, I'd like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Great question. Um, the most interesting thing about me, I would say, both personally and professionally, is uh, uh, I am passionate for the renewable fuels and decarbonization sector. Um, in fact, so passionate that I've launched Shabina Energy Partners earlier this year to provide uh, strategic advisory services to those types of clients. I'm not aware of any other dedicated strategic advisory services that uh, are exclusively to the renewable fuels and decarbonization sectors. And look forward to chatting with you a little bit about that today, Raj. So before we get to Chabina Energy Partners, you mentioned interest, passionate about renewable fuels. Where does that come from? Interesting question. Um, I think it comes a little bit about my background. Um, you know, I, I didn't stumble into renewable fuels the way many others have from a, a growth perspective. Um, I had spent the, the origins of my career as uh, a generalist. So I started out working across different industries and across the capital structure. So 20 plus different industries and doing M&A, capital raising, restructuring work. And, you know, I didn't get into renewable fuels candidly till 2008. That was really when I was fortunate to find my way into the sector uh, with a little case called Verisun Energy, which at the time was the largest ethanol company in the world and a, a real tumultuous bankruptcy filing in the, the commodity crash. And it was through advising the, um, the effectively the farm credit system, a, a syndicate of banks, through seven of the 16 ethanol plants that I realized, you know, there's 
there's a lot more to this and it's going to be facing uh, a number of producers in the sector. And, you know, it allowed me to really develop the firsthand perspective, I would say, at, at, you know, uh, one of the starting squares of the industry and one of the starting squares for both the renewable fuel standard and uh, the low carbon fuel standard uh, in California to come. So it was, was fortunate to come in that way. Um, I happen to be quite passionate and, and curious, I would say, uh, about you know, renewable energy, renewable fuels at the time. And being a generalist, this was one of the, the first times that it really happened to, to pair up my, my personal enthusiasm with, with my uh, uh, professional capacity. And we were lucky because uh, that perspective led to uh, you know, with the support of my colleagues, it, it, it led to about 35, 40 different transactions in, in just ethanol alone, about four and a half billion gallons of total production capacity at, at this point. So, um, you know, it, it worked out really well. And, you know, even more compelling was that these engagements, Raj, were across the entire capital structure. So, you know, senior lenders in the farm credit system, of course, but producers, unsecured creditors, private equity in a variety of, of, of complex circumstances, so distress, restructuring, refinancing, M&A, that wouldn't happen ordinarily in such a compressed time period. But, you know, ethanol has a, 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 a variety of unique uh, circumstances to it. And uh, we quickly realized that I built a vertical at an investment bank that, you know, expressly is generalist, so they don't have industry verticals. I wanted to do more of where I was really passionate about and went looking for a, another renewable energy investment bank where I could complement their distribution network, where I could bring my renewable fuels expertise to help them launch and expand a renewable fuels group and uh, joined up with Marathon Capital about three years ago, uh, maybe three and a half years ago, April of 2017. And, um, you know, we had great success, continue to have success with, with RNG, renewable natural gas, renewable diesel, renewable jet fuel, even continue to do some ethanol work. And uh, it's, it was a fantastic run. And I personally felt that at that point, I've been an investment banker for over 16 years. I felt there was an incredible um, opportunity set, if you will, for these rapidly developing high value, high impact sectors that you know, was going overlooked by, uh, you know, any traditional investment banking structure just in the form of uh, it wasn't an immediate transaction opportunity, right? Um, it really took the form of a strategic consulting or strategic advisory uh, type of format where I could lend my direct expertise, firsthand transaction expertise in these very niche markets, these very dynamic and emerging markets um, ahead of what we'll consider a immediate transaction opportunity where, um, you know, there are, are other investment bankers qualified to, to do the traditional tool set, right? So it was um, uh, kind of a, a risk, of course, to, to, to launch a business. I hadn't modeled in COVID-19, uh, if I'm candid. Uh, but, you know, there, um, uh, I'll put it this way. I felt strongly that the perspective could add real value, would add real value, to an ever-increasing value chain. What I mean is utilities, private equity, infrastructure, debt capital providers, you know, obligated parties, voluntary parties increasingly. That is all, they're, they're all seeking to determine their respective entry point into this low-carbon economy. And you know, that led to Chabina Energy Partners. Um, like I said, we're extremely passionate subject matter experts. 
regarding renewable fuels and decarbonization across transportation, manufacturing, and energy. Um, and in a way, this is really just a natural extension of my existing core competencies, my, my relationships, uh, and, and perspective into this lower carbon economy. And to give you a snapshot right now, advising clients across, again, the capital structure and the value chain in carbon capture utilization and sequestration projects, uh, many of uh, which are requiring 45Q tax equity financing, renewable natural gas, both you know, uh, anaerobic digestion in dairy and uh, landfill gas to RNG, uh, renewable diesel and, and waste to value verticals. So we seek to really work with clients ahead of that you know, obvious transaction opportunity. These markets, again, are extremely dynamic, even within renewable fuels. And there's a ton of opportunity for parties to get involved that is not immediately apparent um, for, for, for all eyes, in my opinion. So take us back to that moment. 2008, you have this opportunity to get involved with ethanol at the time. Did you have an aha moment? Because we were moving directly into the financial crisis during that time. Was that an aha moment for you where you saw this as the future or was it just part of like, you know, just a regular project? <laughs> Great question. So uh, the upon the immediate few flights out to um, Sioux Falls, South Dakota and minus 35 degrees, I will concede, <laughs> it did not appear that uh, I had any aha moments worth uh, productive. I'll put it that way. And uh, I, I wasn't until I, I really got the lay of the land and understood the, the tailwinds and the headwinds that, um, you know, it, it made sense as to what was going on. It made sense to the strategy we were advising our, our client on and their, their investment horizon, their role in this, this value chain, um, particularly where the sector was at the time. Um, it, it was an issue that needed to be resolved. It was a, a debt capital issue that needed to, in the most simplest form, that needed to be resolved. And in bankruptcy court, and I view the, the bankruptcy court as a, another lever to effectuate um, a, a, a transaction. And that's uh, owing to my restructuring background, of course, but um, without it, I would not have gotten into that sector. I would not have gotten into uh, uh, the farm credit sector, certainly, and I owe much of my background and expertise to um, those types of relationships. So just for the benefit of the audience, can you define what a debt capital issue is? And then <laughs> after that, obligated versus volunteer parties. Sure. So um, when I refer to Verison, I'm simplifying, oversimplifying a complex bankruptcy. But um, when I say debt capital issue, uh, they had uh, found themselves in the commodity crash when corn was rising to an all-time high every other hour uh, locking in contracts at, a, at then below market prices uh, only to have the market fall. So they were buying corn um, uh, effectively at prices higher than the market and had contracts owing more than they were able to, to pay effectively. Uh, once the, the, the loans and their credit worthiness started to erode, um, you know, their liquidity dried up and they found themselves very quickly in bankruptcy. So that's what I meant by a, a debt capital issue. Um, in terms of voluntary parties, regulated parties, and obligated parties, um, the obligated parties, capital O and capital P, I refer to them as um, uh, parties under the Renewable Fuel Standard, the RFS, the federal program. In terms of regulated parties, I, I use that to refer to 
um, the, the same parties within the, the low carbon fuel standard, the state level program in, in California. Appreciate that. So you mentioned the low carbon economy earlier. You've been on this ride now for, let's call it 12 years. You've had your hands in it. What do you see from a holistic perspective the next you know, 10, 15 years playing out? And are there any specific areas? I think you mentioned carbon capture earlier, but any specific areas that you're looking at harder than others? Yes. Um, again, great question. I think um, carbon capture 100% is a, a significant focus of mine. And I believe that'll need to be um, a, a much larger deployment of those types of projects across industry segments, uh, across the globe to, to have the impact that we need to have you know, full stop. So I, I think that train is has long left the station, and I'm, I'm excited to, to play what minimal role I, I can in its, in its progress. Um, but for the purpose of, of addressing your question as to the, the value chain, the expanding low-carbon economy, I want to use, if I may, RNG, renewable natural gas, as, a, as an example, because it's, it's a perfect candidate for, for the, the metaphor or the analogy I'm trying to create here. Um, I started in this space explaining the value proposition of low carbon fuels, whether it be an RFS value proposition or LCFS proposition or, or, or both, to explaining that value proposition to different types of capital providers. And I've been doing that for, for many, many years. And it's incredibly exciting to be having conversations with those same types of parties around extremely low carbon fuels like renewable natural gas, which can have you know, CI in the dairy side, minus 250, minus 300 from a carbon intensity score. Um, and, you know, these these incredibly low carbon fuels, I'm watching these parties that not only say we're skeptical, that's the wrong impression, but we're less aggressive, we're more um, reluctant. I suppose there's a great, you know, uh, example of a lot of people want to be first to be second. Uh, and we watched that happen. And now the value chain for RNG after a few transactions have been uh, proven out after projects are pumping real RNG into pipelines and monetizing it in California and expanding and you know, really making an impact. Uh, you're seeing different types of larger parties come in. What I mean to say is major obligated parties, major uh, regulated parties. You're seeing utilities play an increasing role. You're seeing voluntary parties and corporates look at, at how can I uh, you know, basically take my existing natural gas usage and decarbonize it? Or how can I make RNG, um, you know, work for me? What's my strategic entry point into this low, vat, low carbon economy? And that's, that's pretty compelling. And we haven't seen, or rather, I have seen and heard of many of the headlines before, right? I've, I've seen my own, my own limited popularity wax and wane, as a renewable fuels investment banker <laughs> over the years, I'm happy to say I feel there's good tailwind now. But aside from uh, you know that limited encouragement, I'll tell you there's real capital behind it now. And I'm not doing much of the convincing anymore. It's more about framing the risk profile and balancing the right uh, tolerance to spot exposure. It's about aligning interests. It's about valorizing the right products. I'm sorry, projects. So, you know, there's a, that's a big shift from, you know, my perspective. And it's, it's interesting to watch 
um, uh, a lot of these CCUS projects, the carbon capture projects, it'll be interesting to watch how the 45Q program uh, continues to prove itself out and how that will um, you know, apply carbon capture projects across industry as well once it brings in the tax equity uh, financing component. So there's a lot to be excited about. Well, you mentioned tailwinds and you know, obviously you're optimistic about the future. What are some of the challenges that these parties will face? Oh, boy. Uh, we, is this part one of uh, a 10-part period? Uh, <laughs> we have as much time as you need. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get a softer chair. Uh, no, I would say, as always, renewable fuels uh, face a significant amount of regulatory uncertainty broadly. However, you can't, um, you can't take all regulatory uncertainty and bundle it, right? You can't bundle that risk from an underwriting perspective. So what generally the market has done is uh, bifurcate LCFS, state-level risk, from federal-level risk, RFS risk. Uh, and you've seen that not only in um, uh, the types of projects that are developing and where they're deriving most of their value or revenue, um, but you're seeing that in the investor appetite, Right. I think what would be extremely positive for this sector and the direction in which lower carbon fuels are headed, and we should chat on that in a minute, uh, where I see the, uh, the transition or transformation of conventional or, or corn starch ethanol going. Um, but let's come back to that. Where I really see uh, a lot of help coming would be if there were longer term regulatory certainty around the RFS, which we know as Reset periods, which we know has consistently delayed renewable volume obligations, which, um, you know, if we had more clarity there, that would be very helpful. Additionally, if there were, um, uh, let's just put it, a, a more clear expansion of state level LCFS plans, I think that would be uh, very well received as well. There's been a lot of discussion, uh, but it remains sort of fragmented and it remains uh, somewhat uncertain. So all of those types of programs give investors, of course, um, significant, significant comfort. And uh, you'll, you'll see those projects um, uh, develop. So where do you think lower carbon fuels are headed? I think um, it's a it's a race to, to, to the floor. I, would, I should say floor, but, you know, we're talking minus 300 CI fuels and lower. So, you know, you tell me where the floor is, right, Raj? But uh, I, I would say it's a uh, it's not one mousetrap for all fuels. And this is a good segue to what's happening right now in conventional ethanol, right? Uh, Corn-based, starch-based ethanol in this country. There's really a need for a point of differentiation. And what do I mean by that? Um, if you don't have some unique capacity, of course, um, you know, assuming you had some major cost advantage, which you really don't uh, in a maturing commodity business, if you had some unique capacity, some point of differentiation, such as that, uh, you know, Pacific ethanol, for instance, uh, going to specialty grade alcohols, GPRE, focusing on higher protein, um, <clears throat> higher protein uh, uh, feed. Uh, white energy focusing on uh, carbon capture and lower carbon fuels as a result. I mean, these are these are pivots away, material pivots away from being a you know a, a commodity ethanol or corn in ethanol out 
uh, production facility and most other ethanol facilities have always risen to the challenge, right? I mean, they've gone through a number of waves of restructuring. And what I, I do fear for that space is without uh, the continued sort of forward thinking, without the support for that, there will be a, a sort of cost optimization of that capacity, right? Um, unless you're betting on corn and ethanol prices, and there's likely a, a far easier way than owning an ethanol facility to do so, uh, you, you must have some business plan as to why the next three years are going to be uh, better than than the last. And I, I would say you're seeing it reflected in everything from uh, simple capital projects, simple cap X projects like, um, uh, you know, corn oil was the first to now it's in maybe, I don't know, two thirds, three quarters of the plants out there. Uh, to um, uh, more complex projects like uh, CCS and, and uh, high protein. But either way, I think that's where that, that space is viewing the highest and best value of its products. And I don't think it's in a maturing commodity product. I think it's in uh, you know, the, the, the examples I provided. So let's dial back to Chibian Energy Partners. You mentioned you launched this year. Congratulations, middle of COVID though. But <laughs> what kind of parties would seek out your advisory services? Uh, thank you for asking. So um, we we did launch in the middle of COVID, and you know it's 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 a real time example. We're all really you know, living the movie as we write it in many uh, in many ways. But one particular example I just want to give you, Raj, is. We were tested from a specific project, but it applies to anyone with a low carbon value proposition using the California LCFS pricing as a barometer um, here. You saw pricing at the sort of peak COVID uncertainty, March, April timeframe. You saw uh, that was real demand destruction. I mean, that that was, you know, cars off the road. That was, you know, lockdown orders. That was that was real. And you saw it reflected in the supply and demand. You saw that reflected uh, in the, the LCFS pricing, which went from roughly $200 a ton, which fell to maybe $170 a ton, but then notably rebounded by summer to closer to you know, $190, $200 a ton, which is where it is again today. So I think that's a really strong validation of what we believe to be true, that the low carbon fuel standard market in California is undersupplied and will continue to be for some time. And those requirements for lower carbon fuels will continue to increase. And I believe that it also validated many of the business models for projects that we're working on, that even in the roughest of times, um, you know, we can see we did not model in that demand destruction overnight. Um, we, we, the project prevails, which is, which is also incredibly encouraging. Um, back to your original question about what types of clients specifically, I think the easiest way is to, to give you a quick cross-section. I mean, right now I'm advising clients in a strategic consulting capacity, um, again, across the capital structure in a, a CCS project. I'm advising a, a very exciting renewable diesel slash carbon capture project uh, that is uh, uh, well known on the tongues of folks in the carbon capture world. And they're advancing very quickly with uh, exciting offtake options and uh, strategic partners around that project. 
Um, we are uh, working with a uh, environmental marketing uh, company. Basically, what they do, or environmental attribute marketer, excuse me, what they will do is uh, effectively allow for floor pricing contracts for the LCFS exposure, which really doesn't exist at any attractive uh, price level at the moment for projects with that type of uh, spot market exposure. Um, they've got some interesting financial instruments around um, uh, the LCFS and some backgrounds around environmental attributes that uh, make their, their sort of product a, uh, a unique and welcome one to the space. Uh, so we're, we're seeing how that resonates with folks up and down the value chain. And I'm working with traditional private equity uh, uh, investors and infrastructure investors that are saying, look, we've, we've been in, uh, we understand the value proposition now. We want to, again, going back to RNG, because it's an exciting example, um, and there is a lot of project development, and you're seeing a lot of interest in, in projects of scale. Um, but we, uh, we went back to the, the, that particular value chain and, you know, the appetite from private equity to, um, uh, find developers in, in, in investable targets is significant. There, there's a lot of competition and the more these types of, um, let's call them newer financial instruments come out that can make a party like that more competitive and make the, the, the value proposition they're underwriting, uh, more attractive, um, you know, that's that's going to be pretty compelling, I would think, to folks trying to find their way into uh, this world. Uh, at the same time, we, we continue to speak to uh, more traditional utilities that are um, less concerned about uh, potential upside in the LCFS than they are, um, you know, let's just say, potential downside scenarios. And that creates a, a whole world of, let's call it, potential project participants that need their interests aligned. And it creates a, a gap we often find in what's uh, considered to be acceptable risk tolerance without um, you know, newer instruments like the one I just mentioned. So the market's evolving in, in real time. I would welcome discussion with with anyone along the value chain that has an interest in uh, developing these types of projects and is, uh, uh, you know, open to having a discussion for subject matter experts where we can lend our perspective to, to help valorize such a project. So speaking of markets evolving, we've touched on ethanol, renewable diesel. There's been a lot of buzz recently, recently around hydrogen what are your thoughts about hydrogen, some of the opportunities, and even some of the challenges out there? Extremely excited about hydrogen, um, but you know, I I, uh, I will often joke that it's a it's a large ball of wax. Hydrogen. Um, what do you mean, right? I'll, I'll say you work in finance. Well, you know, so does the the, the cashier at uh, at the donut store. Can we be more specific, right? Well, if if you're talking about large scale hydrogen projects for this you know transportation infrastructure that's um you know obviously a a major infrastructure project i think it's very compelling um and we're watching it closely um i think there are a number of notable hydrogen projects that are um i won't say necessarily modular but smaller scale that um that do pencil and have a lot of uh 
good tailwinds behind them. I'm also very curious to watch uh, what type of uh, support plays out for those markets and how renewable energy, wind and solar plays for for green hydrogen. You're seeing a lot of uh, very compelling, certainly research, but more than research, uh, sort of draft policy and, and sort of initiatives around those types of initiatives, uh, which is which is pretty cool. Um, so I, I think that I am very enthusiastic for the prospects of hydrogen. And uh, at the moment, though, uh, for better or worse, it seems to have remained a larger ticket entry fee because uh, most of the buzz has been around, um, let's just call it, uh, at least in my experience, larger scale infrastructure. But there are plenty of companies and, and, and projects out there that um, you know, more I'm seeing every day that are looking to play in that value chain. Got it. So I'm going to switch gears here and get to the crux of our conversation. You know, you mentioned how you how you were introduced to the world in 2008 regarding the ethanol, but what's your why? What drives you? What keeps you going in this renewable energy sector? Yeah. So again, uh, great question. Um, I think. I think it started with a an individual passion and genuine sort of curiosity around renewable energy, then renewable fuels. And I happened to, as I, I mentioned earlier, receive an assignment, um, I get, get uh, the opportunity to work on an engagement in renewable fuels that, that led to my, uh, my foray into the sector. And I, I would say that I just found myself constantly reading up on things outside uh, the immediate engagement. And what I mean to say is I, I, I bought textbooks on biorefineries. I read white papers on <laughs> lignocellulosic technologies. I was even fortunate to work with a, uh, a technology developer around a lignocellulosic technology that would replace phenolic resins. And you know, I, I completely nerded out and pretended I was you know, a chemist in, in my own brain by just diving into the stuff. And, uh, you know, certainly was the only guy without a PhD there in the room most of the time. But I, I was passionate in the sense that I, I knew the application of the technology. I knew where the value was given my existing uh, sort of relationship Rolodex and how I saw the world unfolding. And I, I just wanted to know more about it. So I kept on reading and I was Lucky that we happened to have more more work along the way, and that uh, you know it wasn't, uh, for instance, uh, coal companies that piqued my curiosity, or, or something where I'm not exactly uh, uh, thinking there's a long, long future for. Uh, I think that you know we're going to find ourselves on the right side of history, if you will, for lower carbon. You know, insert brackets, right, Raj? I, I just think that that's the way. This economy is heading. I think that's the way uh, the world is heading. And transportation fuels, where I started, is is one component of it. But decarbonization is obviously broader than just transportation fuels. It's manufacturing. It's energy. It's it's everything. So um, back to your original question: What what you know, why? Why do I do what I do? Um, I, I completely geeked out on the passion side, and uh, that led me to where I was. But you know that was sort of pre pre-family. And, and now I have a, uh, you know, beautiful wife, Logan, and I have a three and a half year old son. And we just two weeks ago, and I thank you for your patience and rescheduling Raj. Uh, but two weeks ago, or, or roughly two weeks ago, right before Thanksgiving holiday, welcomed our, 
our second boy, um, we moved and we started a new business all within, uh, you know, it feels like 30 days, but it feels like 10 years. Um, so I, I can tell you that you know, what really drives me is, is the family. I mean, I, I think that, again, only speaking for myself, but I would sincerely hope that everyone had an opportunity in the last 12 months to reflect on, you know, in this of all that's happening with COVID, with, with politics, with, with the economy, everything uh, that's going on this last year, I, you know, I, I think there's has to be some reflection on what's truly important. Uh, so for me, I want to be able to show my, my sons that their, their father followed his passion. He, he always stayed curious because that's what I tell them. Uh, I tell them to never stop learning. And, you know, look, I, I think it's more about finding that, that passion, putting in the work and the focus, and, and hopefully that'll be a, as good a precedent as I can provide them to do, to do their own uh, and follow their own passions and goals in life. So uh, I, I think the destination is, is the same, but uh, the fuel and the fire is, is, is a bit mixed now. I love the idea of being driven by curiosity and obviously, you know, dotting that I with family behind it. I feel the same way. And, you know, you mentioned earlier tailwinds. I feel like this sector, the way it's moving right now, I don't think it'll either, it'll ever be able to satiate the curiosity we have around it. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's incredible. I mean, some of the stuff that I read about, you know, in, again, some of these, uh, these outside reading materials, um, you're seeing uh, what seemed like not science fiction, but what seems so far away from anything that I would ever have the opportunity to cross paths with on a professional basis. It's not. I, I, I had hoped to get involved in you know the first biorefinery in the U.S. I had hoped to get involved in you know uh, operating renewable natural gas projects, and it's it's exciting and they're real. And I, I believe that, um, you know, the as one of <laughs> one of, if not the only geeky renewable fuels, decarbonization investment bankers, strategic consultants out there, uh, I, I've been very fortunate to have played a very limited role. But I've witnessed the evolution of these these low carbon markets and programs, the RFS, the LCFS firsthand. And. I feel that my perspective is, you know, it's been strong, but it's defensible. And I, I believe that these markets are related, but distinct. I think the unique value proposition of each market segment and the various type of project opportunities within them, it, it, it takes that type of, I don't want to say specialist. I don't consider myself a specialist. I, I, I consider myself someone with, with direct transaction experience uh, in these markets. And, you know, I joked with you earlier about popularity waxing and waning, but I do see real capital coming in. That's a, a real marker uh, for me that it's not just uh, an interesting headline, something fun to talk about every three or four years. Uh, I think that the continued growth of these sectors has been remarkably exciting, but it's still early. So we talk about California and the LCFS, but that's you know, in my my broader crystal ball, that's or, or you know, bad metaphor. In my book, probably even a worse metaphor. Uh, the first chapter or two is 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 of course the highest and best way at present to monetize low carbon, uh, you know, renewable natural gas would be the California market. Um, however, I, I think that's just the first two chapters. And what what other parties do with renewable natural gas from different types of resources, whether it be wastewater treatment plants 
or landfills or once people understand it's a, a methane mitigation issue, um, it, it becomes far more adaptable and far more exciting. And I think that I, I don't claim to have all the answers of, of where that that interest will go and what the value chain will ultimately look like, except I can say firsthand it's expanding every day. Uh, and that's that's incredibly exciting. And you're seeing institutional capital providers try to um, I would say try to I'll say um, they, they've they've understood and watched the the these types of opportunities come and go for a long time. And I think their comfort levels around uh, certain programs, particularly the California LCFS, has has certainly become uh, far more underwritable, and that's that's playing an increasing role in these these developing segments. So I do think collectively we'll be on the right side of history. I think uh, it's it's exciting. The right side of history is exciting. So you started out as an investment banker, transitioned into this renewable energy sector. What are some of the most valuable lessons you'd say you've learned about yourself on your journey? Learned about myself. Um, I am impatient. Uh, I've been I've been told that uh, I've been told I'm defensive. That is that, that is correct. But I can explain. No, I, I, I kid. Um, I, I I do believe that. <laughs> Uh, you know, those are, those are things I, I, I have to pair back, uh, with my enthusiasm and passion for the sector. It's, um, it's always been, uh, look, I've been in the space for a long time. So explaining different types of value propositions and, and looking at different types of projects from one another, I, I'm familiar with that. And it, it doesn't take me long to, um, you know, see sort of the, the marginal difference from one or another, and to sort of benchmark it in my head. And, you know, what I'll, what I'll tell you is that um, not everyone sees the world that way. And uh, unfortunately for me, uh, things move slower um, than I would like, particularly in a world with a, uh, a, a real global pandemic. And, you know, those are, those are realities that I need to address. Um, so I would say, one lesson I learned is, um, you know, breathe a little bit, Scott. Take a take a moment, but you know, don't lose sight of the target. Um, I wouldn't be, you know, uh, obviously I'd, I'd have to have thick skin, or I wouldn't be coming from restructuring, and I certainly wouldn't be in renewable fuels because we've we've taken some hits and we we keep on going. Uh, but I think it's it's really a broader decarbonization story, and uh, you know, I'm I'm very excited to see how it's expanding so quickly and excited for particularly the next few years, um, uh, how the, the continued low carbon markets grow. Well, speaking of the next few years, and you kind of mentioned crystal ball earlier, it's 2030. What does Chabina Energy Partners look like? <laughs> um, great question, Raj. Uh, look, in a, in, a, in a perfect world, I would 2030, we would have seen another expansion of, of the uh, at a minimum, the California LCFS. We will have other states adopting uh, their 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 regional programs or state programs. Um, I think that Chabina Energy Partners will continue to to uh, develop its perspective, its its industry leading perspective on the front line for for low carbon fuels and and decarbonization, and will continue to add value to its clients in in that capacity. But um, you know, I've I've always said that. I'm, I'm eager to uh, not to say put my money where my mouth is, but eager to have some 
uh, principal exposure to you know said crystal ball, right? So uh, hopefully by by that point in time, there will be another arm of Chibian Energy Partners that has um, uh, basically invested uh, behind such a thesis and and with with folks that see the world in a similar light or, or through the same lens, and we'll be able to not only uh, bank on past precedent of, of history, but direct uh, project experience uh, from an ownership perspective, as well as a, an advisory perspective. Well, I look forward to seeing that come to fruition and perhaps even Chabina Energy Partners and Sons. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, look, hey, it's, it's I, I, selling renewable energy uh, and the passion I have, believe me, I've been doing it 16 years. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it on someone who doesn't share the passion. Uh, but I, I think that uh, decarbonization and, and where the low carbon economy is going really does offer a tremendous amount of opportunity. So I'd, I'd love to see them uh, find their way through such a value chain. But um, again, happy and healthy Raj is, is most important. I agree. So Scott, last question. And you've kind of given some advice earlier regarding following passion. But if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, it could be professional or personal. What would it be? Um, again, I, 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 uh, I, I'll take those first two bullets on, on please try to stay patient and, and don't be defensive. Take criticism. Um, I, I'm giving myself that, that advice simultaneously. But, um, you know, I, I think that the most valuable lesson I learned, again, came through not only launching a business, but having a child and buying a home and, and uh, moving and, and and, and dealing with all of this simultaneously in a, uh, uh, a, a very struggling economic environment and, and the pandemic. I mean, we've all had to face challenges in this environment. I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm just telling you that I wouldn't have been able personally to handle or juggle all of that uh, without a incredibly strong support system. Um, you know, my, my family, but most principally uh, my wife. I mean, I, I don't know how on earth. Uh, she was able to, um, uh, and, and she, she's very successful in her own right, uh, career-wise and continue to work now, um, uh, keeping uh, her business going. So it's, it's uh, impressive and critical to, um, uh, well, I would say, you need to recognize the support around you. Um, it's difficult to, to take the blinders off every once in a while. Uh, and it's important to recognize that, you know, you, you, you really can't do everything on your own. And um, I, I am very humbled and excited and privileged to, to have someone like that in my life that makes, uh, makes launching this endeavor uh, somewhat less uh, <laughs> threatening, uh, at least uh, emotionally on paper. It's, uh, it's still exciting. And, uh, you know, look, I, I, I think that um, without her buy-in, without her support, uh, I, I wouldn't be where we are today. So if I were to tease out some advice from that, it sounds like a couple of things to me. It sounds like, number one, find a good support system. It takes a village. And second is, and I've heard it said different ways, but the person you marry will be the most, if not the most, pretty close to the most important decision you ever make. Of course, said uh, far better than I, but yes, yes, that is exactly right. And, you know, uh, sh she's, she's a business partner, uh, you know, on, on everything. And uh, I would tell you, 
you need to have the support and perspective from trusted people in your life to to make the right decisions. And making decisions unilaterally is uh, is a tough way to go forward. I agree. Well, Scott, I've really enjoyed speaking with you, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. I appreciate it, Raj. The pleasure's all mine, and uh, uh, thanks again. I'll uh, continue to be a longtime listener and uh, speak to you soon. Thank you, Scott. Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, The Adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue at our website, nexuspmg.com, under the Original Content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.